1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. In this podcast, I ask my guests to reveal the seemingly insignificant things from their life that personally they treasure so much that they would like to see them preserved in a time capsule. They pick four things they love, but one thing that is important, but which they wish they could erase from their life. We then talk about each thing before sealing it in a time capsule and burying it in the ground. My guest this week is the actor Kevin Bishop, who started his career as a boy in Grange Hill before being cast as Jim Hawkins in the film Muppet Treasure Island. He went on to appear in numerous TV shows, including his own series, The Kevin Bishop Show. He was in Pie in the Sky, Love Soup, My Family, Peep Show, New Tricks, Benidorm, Murder and Success Nigel Farage Gets His Life Back, in which he played the titular character... Detectorists, The Tracy Ullman Show, Plebs, and a whole series of Porridge, where he played Nigel Norman Fletcher. He played the title role in the TV film Dick Whittington, and has been in over 20 other films, such as Horrible Histories, the movie, Rotten Romans, A Few Less Men, and A Few Best Men, where he gives the funniest best man speech in any film, in my opinion, David Brent, Life on the Road, Moonwalkers, and Keith Lemon, the film. This episode with Kevin was recorded some time ago at his home during that envious time in the distant past when two people could be in the same room without masks and without fear of killing each other. I look forward to making more recordings this way again soon. Roll on the vaccine. Actually, don't roll on it. Put it in my arm. Thanks. But in the meantime, I hope this reminds you of Joy's Past and happiness is to come. I slightly suspect that actually you're a liar. I think that you're one of three triplets. <laughs> and that you spend all your time sharing out the things that you do in your life. Because I've never known anybody who's as busy as you. Uh,
1: my wife would, would disagree with that. she sounds sound very lazy. But, um, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm always trying to keep busy um, doing other stuff Hobbies. You have to have hobbies. Got to have don't hobbies. you? When you're especially when you're when you're an actor, you know. And uh, yeah, make, make acting your hobby. I think that's the uh, that's yeah. the, the secret, isn't
0: it? And you don't feel any pressure when you sort of say, Well I'm I'm not actually doing the acting, but that's just a hobby.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well actually an actor did say to me when I was really young, he said, Kevin, when you can make acting your hobby, you've cracked it. And I remember thinking, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and now I'm I'm nearly forty, I think. Oh God! <laughs> I wish it was my hobby, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and not my living. My advice to young people who are thinking of going into acting is: well, become an amateur. Yeah. Oh, aim uh, high.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know there is something about that. I mean, I um my my daughter took part in a kind of in a local thing that they were they wanted to get school kids for the Sound of Music, and she was one of the Von Trapp kids, and I saw her in her performance. And I saw all the other actors on stage, and I thought they are enjoying this so much, yeah. And they're doing it because they love it. And I thought, God, there's not many actors that have that moment of serenity on stage. You know, there's something about it being your work as well, and and your, you know, how you get your money and stuff that. Does remove a bit of the art and the and the, the beauty of doing it.
0: Yeah, in fact the joy of theatre often only occurs to you when you're in the wings, I think. I agree. I've had that moment a few times. I'll do a lot of work with gorillas and
1: and I remember we were in going when i go on sort of tour with them or I'll see them in concert and just being at the backstage mm. and seeing the sea of thousands and thousands of people. And then you see the, the, the performer in front of you and then the sea of people in front of them. And it, it's incredible. Yeah. I and mean, you just think, wow, it's the closest that you'll ever get to actually being a rock star yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we did this thing at the O2 with the Muppets. The Muppets did a, uh, they, they said, hey, Kevin, we want you to come and perform with the Muppets at the O2. You're like family to us and uh, we'd love to get you back. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Jesus I'm going to the O2, the O2, the O2, right, okay. So we go to the O2, and it was mental. It was completely mental. I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. It it's was huge, ridiculous, it? yeah. I mean, there's something scarier about performing to a theatre that only holds 600 people mm. than going somewhere like the O2, the size of the O2, obviously, but there's something kind of, I don't know, it removes you from the fear of it because it's, it's just like walking out into space. You know, like there's no, you don't know, really, it's just weird. Yeah. I, I'm scared of smaller crowds than I am of big, big crowds.
0: Oh no, my experience has always been the other way around. Whenever I've done those great big concerts, I think, how can they possibly see me? <laughs> I, I, I end up jumping about a lot and pulling enormous faces yeah. in a desperate attempt to come across the footlights, as it were.
1: Yeah, hamming it up, love. Yeah, Having that's it up, me. Right? Well, that was my always my problem with, with theatre, as I always think, as an actor going to see theatre, I struggle sometimes in, in going to see plays, and I, I which is a nightmare because I have to go to the theatre all the time to see friends in plays. But <laughs> but I always find when I, people act differently when they're on stage to when they do when they're sort of in life and suddenly they start standing differently and, and shouting and you know and, and the whole posture of their body changes completely. And I, I always find it looks really contrived. So I I struggle and every now and again you go and see a brilliant play where they still manage to project really well and whatever and but they, you, you you can't see them doing their acting, yes. as it were.
0: You know, yeah. but they're they're few and far between, aren't they? They are, they really <laughs> are <laughs> Those shows. Particularly the beginning of a play because mm. it seems so alien, what people are doing. And it's because, really, they're making their voice heard right to the back of the theatre or something. If you at an open-air theatre, yeah. and it starts in the light. And mm. strange enough, your voice doesn't carry as well in the light. Once yeah, it gets strange. dark, there's less ambient noise. Oh. And so you can talk much more quietly in the dark than you can in the light.
1: Oh, that's very true, because whenever you see Shakespeare in the park or something like that, you know, and they're performing, you always think, I, always think, I can't hear a word they're saying. No. And it's because they there's just so much ambient noise around, and yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a there's a 61 bus and something, of course, and you're yeah. all those little sounds and you're birds
0: pitching and over, yeah. And then suddenly it goes dark, and they're sitting on their own on the stage, almost whispering.
1: Yeah, that's very very true. Yeah, but it is that.
0: strange that beginning where you, people walk on stage and really bellow. Yeah. Ah like, yes, I'll have a cup of tea. Yeah, I hate that <laughs> what? I hate that so much.
1: <laughs> For me, I I hear that, and I immediately, I, it, something must have. I've I've got some trauma definitely from my childhood in a theatre where it it went on too long or something. Because as soon as they come out and they do that, I just think, get me out of here! I've got to get out! I've got to get out! And, and what my body does is it, it it actually my rebellion against it is to fall asleep. It's like narcolepsy. <laughs> and it's really terrible, because I don't fall asleep, ever, it, it, unless, unless I'm in bed. But but for some reason, if there's something I don't want to be, like theatre, or, um, or I don't know, a maths class, or if I'm in church, somewhere where I really mustn't go to sleep, somewhere I'm required to pay attention, <laughs> then I will go to sleep. I will go to sleep. I never fall asleep in the cinema. I could sit through the dullest films, no problem, Never never walk out, but theatre... If I get stuck in a bad play, that's it. I I, I can't keep my head up. I'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out for the count. I hate it when actors go, what are you up to, love you? Are you busy, darling? And go, yeah, I'm just doing this thing. And they go, go, I say, what are you doing? And they say, we're doing a play at the Globe. (laughs) You You must come. You must come. I say, brilliant. How long is it? (laughs) That's my first question. (laughs) They go, it's four hours, each half. There's an interval, but then you go, i like, listen, don't promote that. Yeah, you can stand all the way through yeah, it. I don't want to go to that. <laughs> I'm not going to that. Like, that, stop promoting it. If it was me, I'd be ashamed to say I'm in a, a four-hour play. I'd say, don't come, it's four hours. It's fucking horrendous. God, just stay away. Stay away, save yourself. Please don't come. Don't pretend you're going to come, because you're not going to come. It's fine, it's four hours. Nobody should write four hours play. I think it should be a law. It should be a law. It should be a law, be a 90-minute theatre, and that's it. I'm all for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right, so we've got this time capsule, mm. and what I'm going to ask you to do is to find five things from your life that you'd like to put in it.
1: Right, OK. So I've been going out with my wife just for a couple of weeks. We've been together 19 years. And uh, then I went away and made a film in, in Barcelona. Mm. And I said to her, you're going to have to leave your job and come and live with me in my hotel in um, Barcelona because I miss you. I'm, a, I, yeah, I'm, I'm lovesick. And so she did. She quit her job and she came and lived with me in my hotel. But the director was this brilliant director, really lovely man called Ventura Pons. He was a Catalan director. And Ventura Pons, <laughs> hey, watch this man. He said to me, Kevin... Kevin, they can't say, can say Kevin, they say Kevin, they can't pronounce the V, <laughs> so he said to me Kevin, I want you to come to Caracas, it's a place my family for many years I have in this place, you can come, um, you can stay with me for a few days, we have a house very close to Salvador Dali, he used to live in this place, and he was very good friend of mine for 30, 30 years, a very, very good friend of my family. And everybody was a friend of his for 30 years. <laughs> and, and whenever he said he knew someone, he was going, hey, b- very, very good friend of mine for 30 years. <laughs> so we go to, um, we go to Canikes in this car with uh, Ventura and his partner and um, we drive along this country road and we get to Canikes and there's this incredible I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it, it, it's a beautiful place. No, I haven't. No. It really is lovely, and Salvador Dalí lived there. And um, I remember there was this, this mist was rolling off of the cliffs, like a really sort of prehistoric feel to it. It was it was mental. And then we went out in this boat to this beautiful little island, and we had fideua, which is like paella but with noodles. Mm. And we had a her there with the Ayo sauce. And it was the first time I'd ever had it. I was 20 years old. It was the first time I'd ever eaten that food. And I, and I was with my wife, Castor, and we were both really young and in love. And I was making this film. The film was called The Food of Love with Geraldine McEwen and uh, Juliette Stevenson, Paul Reese and Anna Corduna. And it was just an incredible weekend. And I remember we stayed in this hotel. And in the hotel, it was so hot there was no air conditioning. So we took the mattress off the bed and slept in the on the balcony wow. outside on the hotel, and we had we had wine and, and and cheese and stuff out on the balcony, and then slept on the balcony. And I always remember it to this day. It's just like, boy, one of the happiest moments ever of my young life. Mm. You know, I'd left home; it was the first time I'd really been away from home, and um, like working long term, and you know, like just this freedom and Barcelona and Spain, and the, I just fell in love with the place. Mm. I completely fell in love with it. Uh, yeah, and
0: that, that was that was really just the start of an, in, of an incredible sort of experience. So when you first, when you fell in love with your wife at this time, because if I think back to my falling in love with my wife, I was rather strange, I think, or she thought I was strange, because I would always talk about us way in the future. I would talk about yeah. us when we were old. So when we we're old... Yeah. And she would say, well, we might not be together. But I had no, no, pressure. Du- I had no doubt about it. Yeah. I was completely confident in the yeah. fact that, that this this would happen, these things would come about. It's interesting, that stuff, isn't it? Because I, I always wonder, like,
1: as soon as I met Caster, I was just like, well, that's it. Like, that's just it. I'm always going to be with you. Maybe that's because of my childhood. My parents are still together, and they were sort of childhood sweethearts, and... And and I just always, I thought, well, that's just the way it is, isn't it?
0: Yeah It's just acceptance. I've been to Spain several times and done some interesting things, and it's always those sort of off-the-wall moments mm. that are the most memorable, aren't they? Well, those are those moments, I think, in your life. There's moments that
1: I look back on that I remember being in the moment and thinking, I'm never going to forget this. Yeah. And it's funny because you really don't. You know, like, I remember the first time I did a play and I was it was Chichester and I'd left home to go to do this play and it was the cast were incredible it was it was Steve Spears Tom Georgeson Deborah Gillette Andrew Lancel Alec Newman Russell Tovey who mm. I shared a flat with wow. and we were kids we were like 18, 19 yeah uh, it was Nicholas Le Prevot uh, Nicholas uh, playing the piano the songs, the poetry over there and uh, they walked over and He said, what are you fucking doing over here, you cockney? You've scared all the girls off. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved, I absolutely loved Nick. I mean, he was just such fun. And I found some photographs recently of me with Russ and Nick and Steve and everyone else, and, and we're so young. Mm. They're so young. Nick is so young, and I thought he was really old because yeah. I was only nineteen. And I think Jesus he's only a couple of years older than me, no. you know, because it's twenty something years ago. Yeah. Um. And and just a, an amazing time. But I had this. Um, I had this flat. Russell and I we rented this flat from this woman who was very posh. And you know, I, said, I wanted all the money up front. You know, I wanted the money up front. And I remember, I remember we basically, there was more money than to get the flat than we were earning. And every night we'd go to the Bell Pub, which is opposite Chichester Festival Theatre. And we'd, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd, have, we'd, we'd have quite a few drinks. And we'd be sort of staggering home. And then you'd get a call. Hello, hell Nick. Um, look, look. I said this would be a little
0: bit inebriated I'm, I'm really not really able to drive Volvo home back <laughs> to Tunbridge
1: so I, would you and Russell mind if I slept on the floor in the thing and that, this was every night and we had it was like a sort of menagerie <laughs> of these reprobate actors Brilliant. Steve Spears Steve Spears oh
0: cowboy, okay, well, I think I'm coming over I'm going to see it, yours. I hope you do mind. Um, I've got had a few. I've had a few. Don't worry. <laughs> I got this lump.
1: <coughs> I got a lamp. <laughs> <laughs> he's been doing that for twenty years, and I've been worried about him for twenty years, and he's he's still going strong. <laughs> he's still smoking, you yeah, know, these Marlboro Lights. And um, yeah, and it was br- it was brilliant. I mean, just a fantastic time. Where what I really noticed about the actors was that there was no. We were all the same age. You know, I mean, mentally, mm. we were completely the same age. It, it was irrelevant.
0: It's a fabulous thing, isn't it? That that's the thing that it's very difficult to explain to other people who aren't actors. Yeah, that the hierarchy of acting is absolutely based on the part. Yeah, I mean, someone said to me once, an actor to me once.
1: I said, "What is it you love about doing what we do?" And he said, "Well, it delays the onset of adulthood." <laughs> he said, "Because when you're an actor, you just..." You just don't ever really have to grow up, do you? Really? It's like a sort of, you know, you just you just carry on doing what you're doing and and getting by and and enjoying things and dressing up essentially yeah. and mucking about, which is what you know, which is really what it is. And and I totally agree. And I love the company of actors. I find that actors are just we realise there's a finite amount of time to the job that we're on, mm. and so it's like. We're on this thing for six weeks and then it's bloody done. Yeah. You know, we'll we we never
0: see each other. Then we, again. Oh, darling,
1: then, we, then we're back to unemployment, love. Yeah. You know, and, and there is, and we'll never, and we'll, we'll never, we won't work with each other possibly ever again or at least for 10, 15 years. Yeah. So. And then you jump straight back in again as yeah. if
0: you've not been apart.
1: Yeah. And that is that is the best thing. And if, and I always find that, well, I remember in the early days as a child actor and you'd be going for a read through. And this is I'm talking about you know the mid nineties or whatever, and people would go go to the pub go to the pub pub lunch, pub lunch pub, lunch, and all these actors of all ages all go into the pub, yeah, and we, we used to go and we have to have a drink and we'd have a lunch, and that's how we did it mm. and and we were and that's how we bonded because we realized we, it was like a little bit like going to war, like we had to bond really quickly, yes, because we're going to be on stage in a couple of weeks and and we need to get all this Stuff done. You know, we need to break all these... Things that you work with someone in an office and you wouldn't get to know, you know, John from accounts for 10 years. No. And then suddenly you'd see him at the office party and strike up a conversation. This is an instant with actors. Yes. You know, because it has to be. There's no time for no for for getting to know each other slowly it's like you who tell, are you, you what tell are you other about
0: actors things almost immediately don't you just your, yeah. your most extraordinary secrets yeah. you tell them at the first coffee break yeah it's essential that they know
1: that about you that's yeah. what i think you know i think it's essential that we just cut to the chase you know and, and i love that about actors you know yeah. i i really love that about actors and i think that comedians are much more guarded comedians get themselves into a headspace where they think oh, i'm the f- i'm so funny um, who's going to make me laugh. Yeah. And then someone does make them laugh, and they don't like it. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'll you, know? you sit in a room with a bunch of comedians. There are lots of people saying very funny things, and everybody else scoring them. And I, I, but I, I'm, you know, I'll be guilty of that myself. I, I, I think when you when you get
1: involved with comedy, and you start creating comedy, then you do start to dissect Everything. I mean, I was watching an episode of um, Arrested Development the other night, and I was studying the camera angles, and I just thought, what am I doing? Mm. Like, and I was going, oh, that's, that's all handheld, that. And I thought, what am I? what's happened to me? I can't <laughs> even watch bloody... I love comedy. Like, what am I doing? You know, like, I'm, every performance, I'm thinking they've cross-shot that. They've, mm. they've, that's how they did that. They've cross-shot that. And, that's how they did... <laughs> and, and, and that, that sort of... I remember when I was a kid, and I was, I was in Grange Hill... And I loved Grange Hill. I watched every episode. I was a big fan of Grange Hill. And I turned up to Boreham Wood, where we used to film it. And they said, do you want to see the playground? And I was like, yeah. And they walked me out into the playground. And I thought, going out into the Grange Hill playground. Yeah. And then I they showed me this car park where there were cars parked in the playground and that's the wall where we shoot the so-and-so scene. And it's just a plastic wall and a set. And I remember the bittersweet sort of mm. day of, like, I'm on Grange Hill. And also the realisation that uh, it's all, just none of it's end. real. Yeah. One of the things, actually, I mentioned in, in I was going to mention today was that, you know, was working with the Muppets as a, as a child. Mm. And I always had this thing where I thought, because I worked with Tim Curry... And people say, "What was it like to work with Tim Curry?" And Tim Curry bought me a CD Walkman at the end of the job. I mean, in the minutes, this is how old it is. So it was, he bought me a CD Walkman at the time. That was you know fantastic. That was a great present. I mean, it was you know CD Walkman was it was wow. You know, CDs on the go. You know, this is incredible. And he said, to he, "I very specifically remember him walking me up down this." We're in Shepparton Studios and he's walking me across the lot and giving me this present on the penultimate day. And, you know, I just want to say uh, sorry for, for, you know, uh, being a bit standoffish. I have been quite standoffish throughout filming Um, because I just feel like it, you know, wouldn't really help the character that he was friends with jim hawkins and, and and he had really been standoffish but at the time i thought oh, he hates me <laughs> but but i now i'm an adult and i work on set now i was a really overbearing child like i had lots no. lots of believe it or not mike <laughs> i was very very <laughs> i had lots of energy and uh you know people would say are you hyperactive and my mum used to sort of get very upset I, I was i was completely hyperactive and i was bouncing off the walls and also i was very irreverent and and, and, and didn't really pay much respect to anybody because i just thought that it was just a, a great laugh that we were that we were filming and um and i look back on those times and i think yeah it, it, i i sometimes when i work on set and the kids turn up and they are they're they're little shits, <laughs> and I think, oh God, he's coming over again. That little, kid. oh God, he's like a horrible child. And it, and you know, it, it, it's, it's funny how you sort of, you know, you, you change. So I forgive Tim. I do forgive Tim for being incredibly standoffish, but I was a very overbearing child. And um, we were up in the crow's nest in Muppet Treasure Island, up on the ship, this, and, and this, they've got this this false pirate ship. In a huge studio on this huge jig thing, mm. and and it and it mimicked the motion of a boat at sea. And they very very early CGI at the back, and then they put shots of the Caribbean behind it. We didn't go to the Caribbean once; we shot the whole thing in Shepperton. Anyway, Tim and I had a whole day in a crow's nest at the top of this ship, a <laughs> basket, and um, it was just really awkward, and there were just. <laughs> just the hours of silence in this crow's nest I'm 14 and I'm on I'm really cheeky and Tim Curry is this brilliant you know well respected you know actor up in this crow's nest you know. and I just did a moment of awkwardness I said I mean be honest Tim I said Rocky Horror Picture Show those Fishnets I said you're never going to live those down are you And he just took a drag on his cigarette and he looked at me and he went, not as long as wankers like you keep bringing it up. (laughs) (laughs) It was so so inappropriate to to a 14-year-old, but we both had a real laugh. And then he said, you really are a sublime wanker, (laughs) Kevin. And then it became our our little um, private joke, sublime. And if someone came over, he'd say, he's quite sublime, isn't he? Reading, (laughs) he's a wanker. (laughs) So, I mean, that was an incredible experience. I mean, it was was one of the best experiences of my whole life. I mean, working with the Muppets, age 14. Yeah. uh, Just amazing. And they were, they were just lovely people. They were like a family. And, when you work with the Muppets, you never really lose contact with them it's, which is which is quite incredible because of all the jobs that i've done over the years, and you just move on you can't even remember whether you work with them again or 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 when you work with them or not you know with the Muppets there's always something and i've I've had lunch with them in Los Angeles, dinners with them in Los Angeles and new York and where we've all just hooked up and that's brilliant, yeah, even still and it it is incredible, and when they asked me to do the O2, I was just just so. Flattered that they, and and they they made a muppet of me. I have a muppet of me. They made one of me, one of Tim Curry,
0: and one of Michael Caine. Wow! Because Michael Caine was yeah in Muppet Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, which many people say is the best version of a Christmas Carol.
1: It's fantastic. Mm. I saw it in the cinema. It was the first, it was the first one before Treasure Island came. Was the second one? Um, Jim Henson had died a few years before, and Brian had made. Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm. And I would see it in the cinema and I remember thinking, this is the best Christmas film I've ever seen. And a couple of years later, I was on set, at Treasure Island. My word. Yeah. You must have felt blessed. It was, it was insane. I mean, it was, and also I'd been fired from Grange Hill for being just the naughtiest child in, in the world. Yeah. They just said, you got to go. You can't, this is a working environment. This is not, you know, a juvenile detention centre. just got to go. And they they fired me. And I remember telling my dad, he said, I've got a call, you've been fired from Grange Hill. And he said, only my son could be expelled from a fictional school.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, all the kids were going, oh, man, you're in so much trouble now, man, because, like, you've been kicked out of Grange Hill, man. That's it now, that is it now, all oh, my days. Oh, man, like, you're, you're, you must be so embarrassed, man. You must be gutted, man. You must be gutted you will kicked out of Grange Hill. And I was like... At the time, I, my parents were mortified. I was really, I was really worried about it. But do you know what? Like w- within a few months, I was the lead in a Muppet film, and I wouldn't have been if I hadn't have been expelled from Grange Hill. So it worked in my favour.
0: Well, that's uh, it's lovely. I'm going to take the three things that you've mentioned to me so far. I'm going to take these. I'm going to put these are going to go into the time capsule. All right. Okay. I think you should definitely put you and your wife, or I, I yep. suppose then girlfriend, yes. lying on a balcony, Cause... drinking wine, eating cheese. <laughs> I have to say, I'm really jealous. <laughs> and also I think that you at Chichester with those actors and then actually feeling for the first time in a way like an adult and thinking, yeah. here I am, I'm away from home, mm. and I'm with these people and we're all together and it's fantastically unitarian. It's, yeah. it, there's no hierarchy here. We're all just having a brilliant time together and being honest and open with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it was one of those moments where
1: I thought, this is what it feels like to be a proper working theatre actor mm. and I love it and I want to do it again. That that was, that was, it's, that was me done. Yeah. I knew at that moment at 19, I just thought there's, there's, there's nothing else I can do but this and somehow I have to stay employed
0: in this this field. You're very happy to work in the theatre, not to go to it. Yeah, I'll be in a four-hour play. (laughs) I'll be in one. But I'm not
1: watching one. (laughs) Because you know, that's the other thing people don't see when they watch a play. They just think we're all just standing there in the wings. We're not. We're downstairs mucking about in the dressing room, you know, playing pranks on each other whilst you're you know, deep in brecht. Because we're we're terrible, aren't we? I mean, we do we do a play after about three or four weeks. We're all getting bored, aren't we? We're like, oh god, we've got
0: got to do this for another three months. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it's really it? Terrible. I mean, it's, it's a like dream of the job. Yeah, and the moment you get it, you start saying, oh, this goes on
1: god, forever. Oh god, yeah. But it's a great the, the great. is the great actor's joke, isn't it? The actor who hasn't worked for years and his wife's getting very worried about him. She says, any any auditions? He said, no, nothing. Nothing. Well, it's at this rate, I might have to give up. And then one day he gets his audition. She says, I've got an audition. She goes, Brilliant! Brilliant, you've got an audition. He goes in, goes up for the audition. She comes out, how did it go? He goes, I don't know. Finds out he's got the part. She says, Well done, well done, that's brilliant. He says, I know, I know. She says, When you film? He goes, I'll go away Monday. She says, Oh, fantastic. Cornwall, brilliant. Gets back in his hotel room after the first day, phones his wife, and she says, How did it go? He says, Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Director was lovely. Loved what I did. Loved everything I did. Thought it was brilliant. She says, oh, I'm so pleased for you. You haven't worked for all that time. That's brilliant. He says, yeah, but you know what the best thing is? though?" She goes, what? I go, I have got tomorrow off. <laughs> that's just... It's
0: so true. In a bloody nutshell, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So we've got your wife on the balcony. Yes. I've got you at Chichester. Yes. And also I've got you up in the crow's nest. Yes. On the Muppet movie. On the Muppet movie with, with Tim Curry. Let's see. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for, well, for some adverts. That's how we pay for this podcast. We'll be back in a moment. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
0: Welcome back. Right, let's find out what the fourth thing is that Kevin Bishop would like to put into his time capsule.
1: Another moment that I I remember very fondly in my mind was the birth of my first daughter. And I think I have some kind of photographic memory because when I remember events, I remember what people were wearing. I remember I had a, a mustard t-shirt on that had that said pie and mash on it <laughs> and when my wife's waters no it was, when, when her waters had, uh, had bro- hadn't broken actually but she said they've started the uh, the contractions have started it was about four o'clock in the morning and I looked at her and I said right okay what do we do then she went I don't know hmm. and she said I can feel them the contractions are happening and if I'd have known the baby wasn't going to be born for another 40 hours or whatever, from that point, I would have told her to lie down, get, get some yeah. more kip, because yeah. it just went on forever. Oh. But we we lived in Brighton in the North Lane area, and then I remember we got up, phoned the hospital, they said, just relax, come in a bit later on. But I remember going to the hospital in Brighton, and it's it's in a high rise. It's really up high. And you can see the the pier and everything uh, out the window. And we got in there and my wife had pre-packed the, her special baby bag because everything was, you know, locked and loaded and ready to go. And um, I remember she had a musical playlist she had on her iPod. It was an iPod. And uh, we'd go into the hospital and the contractions And She's saying, rub my back. So I have to rub her back. And then, and then like another day went past. I'm like, oh. I'm exhausted. I'm absolutely <laughs> exhausted, and and I was falling asleep, and the, and she would say, "Wake up! <laughs> I'm in pain." And i was like, "Yeah, I said, well, you know, I haven't got agonising pain. Keep keep me awake, I'm, I'm Very insensitive of you." And um, and then. I just said, "Get my playlist. Get my playlist." And I just picked up the phone, and just pressed play, and "Come on, Eileen!" came on. It wasn't on, <laughs> wasn't on her baby playlist. It was just this was just random music. I just put and it was like, "Come on, Eileen," <laughs> and uh, which That's I thought was a baby. Well, I thought yeah. it was a really hilarious choice, and um, and and my wife was furious. And I remember the gas and air that, that my wife was on the hospital, and and I was just taking this gas and air, and I was just on this gas and air. And by the end of it, I was saying to the nurse, I was saying, this gas and air is fantastic. Um, Where can you get this stuff? (laughs) She said, well, it's not actually available. (laughs) I was saying, listen, if I wanted to get some of this, I'd I'd pay you. I mean, this is... This is unbelievable. She said, could you please give the gas and air back to the, your wife now, Kevin? <laughs> and I remember looking out of the window of Brighton Hospital over the pier and completely off my face on gas and air. <laughs> and um, and then, my, then my beautiful baby was born, Arabella. And she came out and she was... It was insane. Like, her eyes were wide open she wasn't crying and she was looking around the room like some kind of sort of tiny gremlin or something like that. But just the biggest eyes and and they were and they were blue and they were open. And it was just it was very, really a mad uh, experience. And I remember being really shocked that it was a girl because everybody had told us, oh, yes, the heartbeat sounds like a train. And yes, it, it's going. Yeah, it's going to be a, yeah, going to be a boy. Definitely a boy. Definitely a boy. So we just assumed it was going to be a boy because that's what everyone had told us. And I thought it was this girl. And I remember being really chuffed mm. that it was a girl. And I remember it, it was it had been like forty eight hours. We'd not, not, neither of us had been to sleep. My wife looked so exhausted by the end of it. And I remember just looking at my wife and feeling so proud of her. I just thinking, how has she done this? Like mm. it was so hard. The birth mm. was so hard. And I remember she looked at me at one point and she said. I don't think I can do this, and I remember thinking, "She's got a point. I don't think she can." We're gonna have to pop it back in, and we we'll have to go away and let it cook for a bit longer. Yeah. And like, come back with a bit in a couple of days. We can't do this now, but that's not how it works. It's it's coming, like, and you gotta you gotta, you've gotta do it. You've gotta keep going. And I just such respect for her for getting through that. I, and I I knew I, I thought at that moment I thought, I I, I'm, I couldn't do this.
0: You really feel for the generation where. It would have been ridiculous for a man to have been in the labour ward with his wife. But that experience of watching your wife go through that extraordinary pain yeah, and that incredible physical demand upon her body yeah, is something you never forget, isn't it? I totally agree. I mean, you, 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 you get closer
1: to them, don't you? Because you, you, you you, I remember thinking at the time, i remember thinking, God, this is so unfair that she has to do this. I, I, you know, that's what I thought. I thought, it's so unfair that she's got to go through this. And uh, and, and part of me was thinking, if blokes had to do this, they, I, they, 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 you know, what, they, what the women had to go through, just absolutely uh, astonishing, really. And I remember just laying on my bed in my flat and looking at the ceiling just going, I've got a baby. Yeah. I've got a baby. And it was a moment that I'll never forget. I'll never forget that moment in that room, lying on that bed with my pie and mash t-shirt on and being a dad, actually being a dad. And, 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 and yeah, she's like my, my daughter's um, 11 this year and she is really, we're very, very close. She was a complete daddy's girl. And um, Audrey was born two years later and a completely different birth, much quicker and a really so chubby baby. Hmm. Um, And it was, again, it was beautiful as well. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, experience one that I'm. I'm so glad I was there for.
0: As an older man, I'm able to tell you, uh, well, warn you. There will be a day where both your daughters will tell you they hate you.
1: Oh, I've already had that. All right, I've already
0: had that. I mean, it, it, it's
1: it's um yeah, I've I, I, de- I had that a couple of times to Arabella and it's just starting to dawn on me now that I've got a wife and two daughters, <laughs> and I've got a, I've got a, when we were buying our dog. The girl said, there's a female available. They've got, they've got a girl one. And I said, no, absolutely not. There needs to be some testosterone. <laughs> I need someone, just someone. And, <laughs> um, and I got my way and I, and I got back my dog. And, uh, but I, I'm completely outnumbered here, hmm. you know? And so, yeah, there's, uh. The bants, as we as we call it, has already started. Because my kids really, really take the piss out of me. Like <laughs> you know, I had long hair recently, a couple of days ago, and my I, I read my youngest story, and she looked at me and she said, What's going on with your hair? You look like a crap beetle. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's a brilliant description. What? Oh, I was just absolutely devastated. And that's basically. What they do, yeah, and it's going to get worse. And they're yeah. only ten and eight, so I always think about like people say, "Oh, I'll tell you, what?" Someone gets my daughter, I'll say, "You look after my daughter, mate. You ever mess my daughter about?" I'll be honestly, good luck <laughs> to whoever gets these ones because they are going to give them a run for their money. You know, they're
0: terrifying. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think any father that moment of realizing, yes, I'm a parent. Mm. I am a father. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment, isn't it?
1: I mean, I always uh, you you forget how hard it is, don't you? And but like the, those early stages, I think between the ages of like you know newborn and four, mm. you are really in the eye of the storm, aren't you? And we had our kids quite close together, and I remember when we we, we had the first baby, and we were thinking, we're really good at this. This is this is we got this. This is easy. Show <laughs> another one. We're we made for this. Yeah. Second one came along, and it was just like. We didn't know whether we were coming or going. I mean, it was a- utter carnage. I mean, my wife handled it amazingly, but I, God, it, it was just, yeah. And we were very lucky because a lot of my work was was abroad in the States. And and when the babies are little like that, you can take them anywhere. But I always worry now. I think, God, if I got that job now,
0: mm. what would
1: I do? It would be a nightmare.
0: Yes, it becomes impossible, doesn't it?
1: It does because they get their own life. And their own friends, and they don't want to go to Los Angeles, or they don't want to go to live in bloody, you know, wherever for a, you know, for a for a few months. And 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 you I got understand their job that. not going to go live
0: in Barcelona.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> yeah, they're not going to do that. But it's just talking to you now. I suddenly realise, you know, how far away those moments are, and actually, they don't feel that far away, but they are. They were yeah. like, there a long time ago.
0: Yeah, and it is
1: like you know Barcelona and. Things like that. I mean, it's, oh my God, like I'm 40 this year. And so, so it's, I was halfway through my life. Mm. You know, it's, it's just mad to, um, to think of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It flies by.
1: Well, there's also that thing of knowing when, you know, what do you make the choices are? I mean, I think when you, when you do have a family, you know, you, you make massive sacrifices as an actor because your objectives completely change and you know i remember being a young actor and i remember thinking the jobs i wanted to do were were not about finance almost they were more about me just being front and center and being the star of this thing. you know that's what that was what i wanted if i want to be a serious actor and go off and do this thing and but i wanted this family and then when you have a family you realize actually you can't you can't devote the time to being that person that other people have done. But also you, you think, I want to do that job because I really want to get that play swing for the kids. Yeah. And they'll love that. You know, every you don't care anymore about the things you used to care about, you know, and, and I, I remember like every job that I choose to do now, it becomes about, oh, that would be good if that if I do that job because that would be great for us to go there and do that and the kids need that yes. and the wife needs that and that, they'll love that. If I get that, they'll love that. It'd be, and, and that's that's just, you know, that's like anyone. That's anyone doing any job. A- everybody does their job because they want to provide for their family. You know, yes. my wife's very supportive of actually it, 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 what I do. I turn a lot of stuff down. And, and I'm sure when the chips are down, she probably sits there thinking, what a selfish bastard he was to turn that down. But she never tells me that. She never makes me feel like that. That's nice, and that is nice because it because I do think the partners really suffer. I think mm. they really suffer. We suffer, and it is a you know an insane business to do keep the momentum going and whatever, and there's, it, it's inconsistent. And we suffer through that, but that was our choice. But I think the partners, I don't think they they never signed up for what they end up with, you know. And what people see is this kind of gregarious outgoing character. Uh, on stage and in the dressing rooms and in the green rooms and whatever, but they don't see this person walking around the house no. for three months, thinking their career's over. Why didn't I get that part? Yeah, yeah. And and watching television going, I can't, I can't believe they went for him. I can't <laughs> believe it. What a boring choice. What a boring choice. You know, right the, way, right the way through the whole film.
0: Yeah, the only time my wife really has ever told me off about it was that I went to Australia for four months when our baby was uh, three months old and we just moved to a new house and every night I would phone her up and just say oh I'm having such a miserable time I really (laughs) miss you really (laughs) miss you I want to see you and the baby why can't you come and eventually she said don't ring me again Unless you're going to ring me and tell me something cheerful, she says, because it's hard enough, me being here with a baby. You're in Australia having a whale of a time, and yeah. all you do is moan about it. Yeah. Well, see, my
1: wife is the opposite. My wife wants to know that I'm having a terrible time. That's what <laughs> she wants me to tell her. So I, I, I'm very, i very careful about the, about the information that I impart, because I... I, I uh, I am always having a wonderful time wherever I am. <laughs> so I have to say, it's fucking miserable here.
0: Very boring.
1: I miss you, darling. It's not the same. Oh, everyone's awful. They're awful. No, there's nobody here under the age of thirty, <laughs> and there's no, everybody's hideously ugly. And and the food is rotten here. In because uh, i I've actually left my wife when I went off to do. I made two films in Australia. And the first one was in Sydney, the second one was in Perth. Both times, I had the most incredible experience. I, I loved Australia. Mm. I think it's brilliant. And uh, I wish that we left all the convicts here and, and, and taken everybody over there, and we'd all just gone to Australia. It was brilliant. It's fantastic
0: place. But um, what is the title of that incredibly funny film about the wedding? A Few Best Men. A Few Best Men. If people have not seen A Few Best Men, they must watch it because your best man's speech, <laughs> with you're coked up, is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a film. It's one of those really lovely
1: sort of gifts that you get every, every now and again. They don't come around very often. Stephen Elliott directed it. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, he directed. And St- Stephen was like this really, really brash Australian. He's just like, what to fucking, just fucking say it. Just fucking do it. Fucking whatever. You know, like he, he wanted it to be ruder, more boring. I mean, he, he's brilliant fun, Stefan. I mean, I just, I, really, really good fun. I mean, and um, Olivia Newton-John. So Olivia Newton-John, there's a scene where we're taking cocaine before the wedding speech. And she says, she goes, do you know how I do this, Kiv? And I said, what, cocaine? She said, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you do it? And I said, <laughs> come on, you know. You must have seen it in a film or something. She went, I, of course I've seen it in movies, but I don't know how you do it. How do you do it? How do you smoke cocaine? And then Chris Marshall and I were we we're looking at each other thinking, who's going to demonstrate how this <laughs> works? And uh, she was just brilliant fun. And I, I remember she's got a lovely sense of humour, Livia, a really lovely sense of humour. And we were in this place called the Lindenfells in the Blue Mountains. And I remember just playing tennis with her at sunset for just two hours, just playing yeah. tennis with Olivia Newton-John. She's an amazing tennis player. And uh, we had the best laugh on that job. We just had the best time. Um, Myself, Chris Marshall and Xavier Samuels. And a lad called Tim Drexel. It was brilliant. The, the whole thing was, was, was great fun. But that, that's, you reminded me when you said about Australia, as well. I remember my wife was heavily pregnant. She was seven months pregnant when I left and I got back and she was ready to drop. Wow. And I remember the whole time, the whole last month, I was out there in Australia thinking, if I get that call, I'm, I'm 24 hours away. I've got to go. Yeah.
0: yeah, I've got to go right now. But well, luckily, okay. you had over forty hours. Yeah, yeah. No? what well, I would have done in no, the, yeah, the first one. Yeah, oh I was yeah, lucky. we're going to absolutely put your daughter's birth into the time capsule. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, I'm going to ask you now to put something in that you haven't enjoyed.
1: Yeah. Um, all right well i I've got something in there because i've never I never talk about this, but um it's something that as I've gotten older i, I you you reflect on your life and you, th- you, you th- we think we're indestructible, don't we when we're when we're kids um and when we're young in general, and I think that lots of stuff happens to us when we're young that we would process completely differently as adults, and we just seem to put them into the back, and we've got that exuberance that just says. We'll get through this, and no, I'm not going to get. I'm not, not going to let that define me. I'm going to no, let's move on. And really, they do. They, I think they come. And they get you in the end. You know, yeah. they eventually come. And uh, when I was 12 years old, I went to a school called Ravenswood School for Boys in Bromley. Same school David Bowie went to, mm. and um, it was uh, uh, last. Uh, classes of the day, and we'd come into the classroom, and the headmaster at the time was Mister Hassel, and he walked into the classroom. He stood up the I thought, "That's weird." He's come into the form uh, class to, to to talk to us, and then he said, "I've got some very very sad news for you." Stephen Granger lost his life last night, and Stephen Granger was my best friend. Oh my word! And I, he hadn't been at school that day, but I hadn't really questioned it. And he was on he'd been on crutches because he had a, a severs disease in his feet, which I meant it was like a, it was like a growing thing. And he was on crutches. And what happened was he 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 lost his life. Um, he'd accidentally asphyxiated himself whilst doing his homework. Um, he had a dog, and and he would hook this dog bleed onto onto things. And he, anyway. He he had hung himself accidentally, and it was so traumatic. Like, I really, really just had the horrors at a really young age. I mean, I wasn't even 13. And um, it was the first time in my life that I was aware of my mortality and that we could die, you know? And I think younger than people should know. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah to become that aware of. And and so childhood innocence is is a real sort of thing for me. I was like, you know, that it can be just, I remember it was snatched away that day completely. And I, the world was, was, was never quite the same again. You know, at that point, my my best mate. And what was really horrible is we used to have these books called a contact book. And, and in the contact book, you had met, you could collect merits. There would be awarded merits from the, from the um, teachers. And, Merits were hard to get, you know. They weren't. They weren't. They weren't you didn't get them easily. Um, and some kids, there's some of the swaps had loads of merits, you know, the teacher's pets and whatever. But that, that merits came particularly difficult for me because I was, you know, so naughty. And um, the teacher had said to me a week before, "Kevin, will you look after Stephen? He's on crutches." I went, "Of course he's my best mate. I'll look after him. That's fine." And one lunchtime. I love playing football and my job was to take Stephen around on his crutches and help him get from A to B. And I just forgot and football. Mm. And I played football for lunch. And the teacher, I walked back after lunch, sweating. I'd been playing football in the, all, all lunchtime. And the to- teacher saw me in the corridor. She marched up to me, Mrs. Hughes, and she took she went, give me your contact book. And I gave her the contact book. She opened it out to the merit that she'd awarded me. And she scrubbed it out in red pen. And then gave it back to me. And when Stephen died a week later, I had that contact book for the rest of the year. And every time I opened the contact book, which was every day, every lesson, every day, I saw the scrub. And it really... Uh, yeah, and, it, and, and it's and it's funny, isn't it? You, you put these things to the back of your mind. But just recently, I was thinking, God, that was really hard. And my mum used to sort of take me to the family. They were Italian. And they would wear black all the time. And then they would wear veils. The, the women would wear veils where they were in mourning. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just really... I just remember it just being a really, really incredibly depressing year. Like, the whole time was just really awful. And I think I had a breakdown. I think I actually had a breakdown at that, at that young age. I really think I did, because I'd hear, like, noises in my like, I'd hear screaming in the, in the middle of a classroom. And I didn't realise at the time, but no, I just got through it. But I look back now, people said to me, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a breakdown. <laughs> that's what happens yeah. Yeah. when you have a breakdown.
0: Well, I think people underestimate how much children are affected by these sort of things. Mm. They feel that actually, but well, they don't really understand. It's yeah. like being an adult where you understand the full consequences of things. But, um, but mm. children also are fantastically good at just getting on with it. Yeah, but there's also if you talk to a lot of people that work in comedy,
1: there's always some kind of I always find something there, and it, and it, it's a coping mechanism. Comedy, I think, it's a skill that we develop that to cope with, with. For in my case, I developed comedy to cope with sincerity. You know, I struggle with it. So when people, I'm the worst person to tell that your cats died <laughs> because I will make a joke out of it, or, or I feel like I I have to. So, so obviously, if someone comes up and says, oh, my mum's died, I'll sit there and I'll give them a cuddle and I'll be, you know, it's, it's a sombre moment. But, but there's something about sincerity with me that I'm very, very awkward around it. So I think that's where, that skill, I was bullied as a kid because I was on, well, I think it was because I was on television, but also I was small and stuff. So I've learned very quickly that comedy got me out of trouble. And not just any kind of comedy, a charm comedy. Mm-hmm. So mine, mine is always about trying to charm someone. My my old thing always always been, if you're doing comedy and that person is annoyed, you've lost. You, it isn't working. You know. So if anyone, someone's in the seat, or whatever occasion, and they're in they're in the seat, they're in the chair, they should be laughing as well. If they're not, then it isn't comedy. It's bullying. Right or or it isn't working. Yeah. It isn't serving its purpose as a comedic moment. So I always find that the comedy that I really like, the comedy I like to watch, is daft and inclusive, as opposed to, you know, spiteful or that kind of that that kind of public execution. I, I I've never really liked those, and I always find the I find the kind of. You know, when someone does something wrong on Twitter or or, or 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 in social media or something, and people sort of hunt them down, I always find myself sort of feeling for the for the person, no matter what to, they've done. Trying to defend them, yeah, try to defend them because I always find that it's like I I just never enjoyed that spectacle. No, you know, never enjoyed that spectacle. I always feel like you know, it, it, it's like watching an outnumbered fight. You know, it's not fair. No, absolutely, one hundred percent comedy is to this day and always has been my way of bursting either tension in a room. You know, I will always say the most inappropriate thing, but it's needed, it's necessary at that moment. It's always, I always feel like when you say something really inappropriate, it's really funny, and it's up the stakes are so high that everyone laughs because it's, it's, it's comic relief. It's exactly what it is. It's like... Thank God someone said something. Well, all, all the funny people are thinking that. Yeah. You know Thank God someone said something funny at that moment, because it's unbearable. Well if you've been watching a bad drama, they just look at each other and they go, "Oh shit, and that's the end of it, you know, Or if they go to see a bad play or whatever, oh, that was I didn't enjoy that. If you go see a bad comedy, people are so offended. yes, that you dared to try and make them laugh and it didn't work. How dare you waste my life <laughs> trying to make me laugh? And I always find it hilarious because I just think it's, it's such a thankless task when it goes wrong. They yeah. can't just go, they can't just accept it. And, and, I, and yeah, there's, it, it, every, it, that's my problem with, uh, with, with like doing comedy in the UK is it's just, there just doesn't seem to be the support for it. You know, you've got to, it, you've, to be a comic here in, in the UK, you've really got to nail it. You've got to get it right. Mm. Or they'll, or they'll pull you to pieces. I think it's. I think comedy means so much to us. It's very precious to us yeah. as a nation. I mean, I remember when I was in France working with. I've done a lot of work with the French over the years. I've got sort of a parallel film career with with European cinema that no one even knows about here. <laughs> thank God. And um yeah, and these these the French when I'm with them, they're laughing at me and they you know, Kevin, you know, he's uh, really, uh, you are so funny in the things that you say. Uh, but you can see they're almost thinking, why is he making us laugh? Yeah. Why is, he try- why is he trying to make us laugh?
0: Why is he bothering?
1: Yeah, why is he bothering? Like, they, they don't have a, it's that kind of thing, like, they, they expect the women to be quite sort of demure. And, and, and so Castor and I, we always, whenever we go, my wife's a good laugh, and she's, she's a good storyteller, and she's a hoot. And my member, remember my, fr- my friend is an actor, he said to me, Kevin, why are you you and your wife, you are so close, you are really uh, close in your life and much in love, what is the secret with that, why do you love her so much, I went, well, she just really makes me laugh, he went, hmm, hmm. but that's not sexy, no, (laughs) yeah, he couldn't understand that, oh, I like having a laugh with her, you know. We kill time by, uh, you know, bucking around and uh, Having funny
0: faces. Yeah, yeah, play, yeah,
1: tuneful, tuneful farts. <laughs> that's how we. That's how we laugh. As a nation, we're very protective about comedy, and we and we're very proud of our comedy mm. heritage. And and when it doesn't work, woe betide you for getting
0: it wrong. You know. Well, you don't very often. That's what <laughs> I'll say to you. So, congratulations. Thank Fantastic. you, Mike. Yeah. It's been lovely to talk to you. I'm we're gonna we're gonna take that little book with that horrible red cross in it. Yeah. I we're, know. Gonna, we're gonna lock it away that it's gone.
1: Yes. It's that's gone. gone. Yeah.
0: Don't worry about it again. Yeah, I won't. I won't. It's good. This has been
1: quite <laughs> cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> well do I do I have to pay you? You've got to invoice me for yeah, this. Yeah, the invoice is on the Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Go. I really enjoyed it, Mike. Thank Great. You.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Kevin Bishop. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, or in fact, where you're listening to this episode now. Or you can try Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And if you've got a few minutes, you could rate us and leave a review. Uh, be sure to spell check it. <laughs> You'd be amazed how many people misspell simple words like amazing or brilliant or even astounding. <laughs> Somebody even got the word great wrong the other day. They spelled it S-H-I-T. <laughs> yeah, honestly, oh, that's homeschooling for you. Anyway, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search My Time Capsule. You can't miss us. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. I hope you can join us again soon. No, really, I mean, honestly, it would be totally shit. Great. Bye.